The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Now we're going to begin this morning by considering what gospel-centered means. Perhaps this is... Perhaps this is something that you're not used to hearing. But before we get into our main points, I want to first make a couple of important preliminary observations. First of all, I don't want to take uh, for granted that everybody here knows what the gospel is. So we want to begin with that foundation first. The Bible teaches that God created man in in his image, but mankind rebelled against God. So God, in his mercy, sent Jesus, his own son, to die in the place of sinners in order to restore their relationship with God the Father. Death could not hold him, and Jesus rose on the third day, and he lives still today to save all who call upon his name. Now, as obvious as this sounds, this might be super simple, super clear. Maybe you all know this very clearly in your minds already. But it's important to get this first thing correct. You cannot be a gospel-centered parent if you are not first a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, although there are biblical principles that you can adopt from the scripture, although there are things that are clear from the Bible that you can begin to apply even if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, what we are talking about today is ultimately putting Christ at the center, making him the goal of what we are doing in our parenting, and making our goal to glorify him. And if you do not believe in him, if you do not love him, then you cannot and will not make that the ultimate aim of your parenting. Foundationally, parenting is just like everything else that the Christian does. It is our ultimate aim that our parenting would give glory to God. So if you are not a a Christian and you're here with us today, thank you for being here. I'm confident that God brought you here. And I hope that you learn a lot of helpful truths about shepherding the hearts of your children. But much more than that, I'm hoping that God will use our time together to open your understanding to the grace of God. That is to be found in Jesus Christ. Secondly, I want to clarify that I am not now, nor have I ever been a perfect parent. I have not ever been a perfect child. My parents will attest to that. Um, Steve Schultz is going to be speaking with us today. Ed, uh, Ed Moore is going to be teaching us later on today. We are not perfect parents. We are not people who have figured it out. In fact, there are very few subjects about which I have more trepidation to speak because I know all too clearly how often I have failed to have a gospel-centered mindset in my parenting. And you've probably noticed it too. However, we can say what we're about to say because the information that we are presenting supersedes us. What we have to teach today is wisdom from God's word. And it's profitable, as the Bible says, for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. So without further ado, let's dive right in. The quintessential Old Testament passage about parenting is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. This is what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you shall be on your heart. 
Now, the result of them being on your heart is that there's going to be a generational transforming of the people who come from you, your descendants. Here's how, verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now what we are seeing so clearly in these verses is that the defining characteristic of a Christian home should revolve around the love of God. It is intended to be about teaching our children the love that God has for us and teaching our children about the love that they are supposed to have for God. Parenting is, at its very root, God's way to present you with a targeted evangelism and discipleship opportunity. You might not be able to preach the gospel well to your coworkers that you sit next to in a cubicle at your job. Perhaps you don't have the ability to quickly turn a conversation on the train from meaningless frivialities to talking about Jesus. But every night you have a captive audience at your dinner table. You have people that want to hear from you and desire to know what you have to say. They are your primary opportunity for evangelism and discipleship. And this is an incredibly weighty and daunting task. It's a huge deal that you have eternal souls running around your house that you are responsible to teach and to train. Now, I've been blessed with four children. And if you've been blessed with children, you know that it's a great responsibility. You know that if you don't care for them, they will not survive. And there are physical elements of that which make it quite obvious. They need you to provide for them. But if you have been blessed with children, it is God's intentional plan for you to bear the great responsibility, even greater than the physical needs, of forming their understanding of who God is. So for the remainder of our time this session, I would like for us to consider five ways that putting the gospel at the center of our parenting will change everything. First, our instruction to our children will be intentionally and abundantly biblical. Just a little over a month ago, North Shore Baptist Church had a parenting conference, and one of their speakers, Brian Davis, was talking, and uh, he's a pastor from Risen Christ Fellowship in Philadelphia. He said that he's been really discouraged about how many times he's talked to parents and asked them questions about why they parent the way that they do. And he said what is shocking and discouraging to him is just how little Bible comes out. Just how little they begin to build their philosophy of child-rearing on the Bible. So I mean by this first point two things. I mean this statement, our instruction to our children will be intentionally and abundantly biblical. I mean that in two ways. It is both to say that we need to build our parenting practices on the word of God. We need to do what we do based upon what the word says to do. But it is also to say that we need to fill our parenting with the word of God. Our children need to know what the Bible says. Now, our philosophy of raising children is far more affected by cultural norms than we probably think it is. Most of us do what we do in our parenting efforts because we have seen it done. 
We do what we do because it has been modeled for us either by our own parents or by the television, which for some of us was our parents, or by the default of what our culture does. Why is it that if you go to Japan or South Africa or the Netherlands, parenting looks so very different in every home? Because we are naturally shaped by the culture around us. And most of the time, the cultural norms are not in alignment with biblical teaching about raising our children. But the Bible's teaching about parenting, it's radically counterculture. The scripture calls us to honor God in our parenting efforts. It commands us that we will do this in such a way that it worships God and that it will lead our children to worship God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. So let's not build our parenting today off of faulty worldly thinking. Rather, let's ensure that we are setting up patterns of life that are built on the word of God. And if you want some really good steps about how to start doing this, I would love to discuss that with you. If you want to know how to begin family worship, it's awkward, it's challenging to begin. My kids hated it when we first started. We were trying to get involved in in doing uh, family devotions every day. It's challenging, and the devil hates it. He will fight against it. But if you want some steps about how to get involved in parenting in that way and family worship, I would love to talk with you about that. There's great resources, good books that will help guide you through it, and I would love to share some of those with you. But being a gospel-centered parent doesn't happen by accident. You're not going to become gospel-centered in your parenting efforts if you don't attempt and strive for it. It is the result of seeking to know and understand and apply God's word. And beyond that, these verses that a moment ago we read in Deuteronomy inform us that God expects us to proclaim the love of God to our children. And we're supposed to do this, geographically speaking, all over the place, wherever you go. That is an opportunity for you to preach to those kids. When you're at the grocery store, when you're in your car, before you tuck them in at night, fill those times up with the gospel. They're listening, and they're probably listening a lot more than you think they are. Just two days ago, uh, Ashley, we were homeschooled, and Ashley was trying to teach my oldest son, Asaph. We were working on him with uh, reading. And my other two children that are just a little younger than him, uh, Athanasius and Petra, were being very distracting. So I thought I would be helpful, and I took Athens and Petra upstairs, and I just turned on some music from Seeds Family Worship, which I highly recommend because it's just straight Bible verses that they're singing, and they don't sound horrible. And so we're singing along with our Alexa, and... They've never heard these songs before. I've never heard these songs before, but we're learning them and they're catchy and we're singing them together for just a little while, you know, one after another after another, maybe five or six songs. And then yesterday I went outside into our backyard and Petra was out there riding her bike on our porch and she was singing. And I asked her, Petra, what are you, what are you doing? And she said, oh, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm just singing to the Lord and riding my bike. I had sung those songs with her one time. And she was already repeating them and singing them. Now, she got some of the words wrong, but it was so precious to see how quickly that simple one-time moment of singing latched on with her. That she was able to grab that moment, and she was able to remember those words for the most part, and she was able to to get that gospel teaching in her mind to the point that the next day she's just riding around singing to the Lord and riding her bike. Now, if you're a parent, you know that kids naturally know nothing. 
They know zero when they're born. You literally have to teach them to do everything. Ashley and I were just talking with our kids about this the other day, that when, when a horse is born, they stand up in just a few seconds. And Mordecai's like five months old, and we're still carrying him around like he's a sack of potatoes. Because you can't, they had to learn literally everything that you will ever, they will ever know. We have to tell them things like, don't paint your brother, or don't glue the dog, or don't lick the garage, or don't eat bugs. You have to teach them literally everything. They have zero common sense. And if it's possible, it is possible to raise children to adulthood who have shelves full of trophies and walls covered in degrees and bank accounts that are full of money, but who have zero understanding of who God is or what the gospel is. The Bible is not lacking in information about training up children. One of the most common things that I hear from parents, saved and unsaved alike, is when you start talking about kids, people almost always say this. Well, you know, they don't come with an instruction manual. They don't come with directions. And on one, on one hand, I understand what they mean, and that, that is kind of true, but it's not entirely true. Because the Bible tells us everything that we need to know about their nature. We know that they are sinners by nature and sinners by choice. And it tells us everything that we need to know about their needs, especially their deeper spiritual needs. And it teaches us about how to shape their hearts. And it teaches us how to change their minds about things. And it teaches us how to discipline. In fact, the book of Proverbs reads like a lesson plan for fathers to teach their sons. Consider just a few really bullet-pointed verses here from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 1.8. Hear, my son, your father's instructions, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Proverbs 3.1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Proverbs 5.7. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Proverbs 7.24. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Proverbs 8.32. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Proverbs 13, 1. A son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. This is just a small portion. There's actually about 80 more of these examples, which reveals that this is a parenting manual for us. That the book of Proverbs is designed to shape our children's understanding about what is good and what is bad, what is wise and what is foolish. How should we live? And what does the Bible say is at the root of our teaching? What is at the beginning? What is the starting line of their lesson? Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And we jump forward to Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And of course, Proverbs 14.37. The fear of the Lord is a foundation of life. I'm sorry, a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Our ground zero of parenting is to teach our children about God. In such a way that they would have a clear understanding that he is to be feared. That he is to be reverentially awed. That they are to recognize that he is a God not only of infinite love, but also of infinite wrath. They should know about how he feels towards them. He loves them. And how he feels towards their sin. That he hates it and must judge it. And they should regularly hear from our lips that God is worthy of adoration and of praise. Because of his cross-bearing, sin-crushing, death-defying love that he has for us. And they should learn that he must punish the guilty. It should produce in them the appropriate awe of fear towards him. 
And in this way, the fear of the Lord is like a fountain of life because it leads them to him to find mercy instead of running from him in rebellion. And that's why it says in Proverbs 14, 37, that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that they may turn away from the snares of death. And they should see that we trust in God. Now, if, we'd never tra- if we never pray with our kids, if we never pray for our needs with them, they probably don't know that we trust in God. In fact, if you do not pray in desperation for your needs, it is likely that they surmise that you are operating in completely self-sufficient manners, even if you're not. So in accordance with Scripture, I encourage you, pray fervently and instructionally in the presence of your kids. Don't lock them out of the room as you are praying together, even if they're slightly distracting, even if they're in the way, even if they're climbing over you at times. Pray so that they would know we desperately need God and we are trusting in Him. So to summarize point number one, Gospel-centered parenting will be abundantly biblical, both in its construction and formulation and in its instruction as we formulate the minds of our children. Secondly, here's the second way that putting the gospel at the center of our parenting changes everything. The gospel changes our definition of love to be built around God's character rather than modern culture, modern co- culture or psychological mores. Now, I think everybody agrees We need to love our kids. I don't know anybody who disagrees with that. I've known people from all walks of life, all sorts of different religions, from all sorts of places around the world, and I don't know anybody who will say, you know what I think is wrong with parenting? We just love our kids too much. Nobody thinks that. Of course not. We should love our kids. But when you begin to define what it looks like to love your children, there are as many different perceptions of that as there are people. So what does it look like to love our children? Some people believe that saying no to your child is unloving. I recently read an article that was saying, speaking about teachers in public schools, said that teachers should not be legally able to say no to their students. Because if they do, it crushes their creativity and it causes them to feel unloved. Others argue that it's unloving to even tell your child what biological gender they are. In fact, there are people who have sued the government, both in the United States and in Canada, saying that our birth certificates should not not even have male and female designations because it is unloving to tell them what they are. Let them figure it out. Now, some people say that you should not discipline your children when they disobey, and they will argue that discipline is intrinsically an act of hatred towards your child. However, the Bible gives us clear and distinct teaching on what love looks like. We learn what it looks like, and we learn how it operates in a child-parent relationship. Consider these different passages. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 through 7 says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, of course, these things are written to speak about the unity of the church. However, they are no less true in our relationship that we have as parents with our children. And our interactions with our children should be in full alignment with the qualities that we read about here. Our training should be patient. 
toward them. Our tone and our demeanor should be kind toward them. We should seek their good above our own good. We should joyfully bear all things. Trust me as a parent, that's a tough one to swallow. We should believe all things. We should hope all things. We should endure all things so that we might point them to Christ. All of this comes with the territory of building up these young ones in love. And beyond that, we see that love is most clearly displayed in the gospel. Romans 5, 8 says, But God showed his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our perception of love is to be designed around the notion that love is self-sacrificial, And that love suffers long for people that don't show you love back. Our kids do not often show us that they love us the way that we want them to. But we are called to love them sacrificially and we are called to love them first. Now our children need to understand that our love for them is undying. They have done nothing to earn it. They have nothing that they can give to buy it. But we have set our affections upon them and they can never lose our love. Our love for them is not conditional upon obedience. It is not conditional upon performance. And if our discipline is giving them those mixed signals, we're doing something wrong. They need to know that we love them completely and undyingly no matter what. This is the kind of love that God has shown us, and this is the kind of love that we should show our children in a myriad of ways. Now, firstly, we need to tell them that we love them. If you do not make a habit of telling your children that you love them multiple times a day, change that right now. It's an easy thing to get from this conference. Just tell them. If you love them, just tell them that you love them. Now, I love my grandfather. His name is Emerson Bunch. Uh, I love my grandfather very much, and I know that he loves me, but... He's never told me that he does. Not long ago, I was talking with my dad, and my father told me, my father has never once said that he loved me. Now, that's a a tradition I'm glad my dad broke, because I grew up being completely aware that my dad loved me, because he said so all the time. He said so every day, every morning before I went to school. He said so every night when he would tuck me into bed. I knew it because he showered me with verbal affirmation of his love. We need to do that for our kids. We need to do that because that builds their confidence and understanding that we genuinely love them. But also we need to show that we love our children physically, with physical affection. Hug your kids, kiss your kids, have wrestling matches with your kids, have tickle fights with your kids, hold their hand as often as you can. One of my favorite things on Sunday morning is when we're singing and Ace and Petra are up there holding my hands. Now they usually don't want to, they're kind of squirming, and part of me holding their hand is to make sure that they're not like attacking each other during uh, our time of singing. But I love that. And do that as long as you're able because there will come a day when they no longer feel comfortable holding your hand. Snuggle with them while you watch a movie. Cuddle with them as you read the Bible before bed. Let them see the tenderness that you have towards them because they will never forget those things. That is a way to reveal that you genuinely love them. Thirdly, be sacrificial in going out of your way to make time for your kids. That might mean that you miss something here or there. It might might mean that you miss the big game with your friends. Well, either miss it or take your kids with you. I know parents who actively try to avoid their children. They do everything they can do to bum them off on either the school system or their parents or whatever because they do not want to be around them. And they do this as often as possible. And 
listen, I'm not saying it's wrong to have a nice weekend away with your spouse. That's good. That's healthy for your relationship, I think. But if your goal is to just try and escape them, then you are totally missing what it means to have the responsibility and to have the missional objectivity of serving these souls that God has placed in your care. Your kids should be able to look back at their childhood and see that you were very intentional in being there with them. The currency that is most valuable in your life is your time. Once you spend it, you will never get it back, and your children will be greatly blessed if they know that you spent that currency on them. They might not see that now, but someday they will. Now also, we need to show our children that we love them by faithfully and consistently disciplining them. Now please understand that if you're not faithful in your verbal affirmation of love to them and faithful in your physical and sacrificial love for them, then this step is going to be radically less effective. But love looks like correction. And the world says that it is unloving to say no to our children. They would say that disciplining them with appropriate physical punishment, they would say that's unloving. But consider the words of Scripture. Proverbs chapter 13, 24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Now, when I think about diligence, that's an important word. It means working hard at it, setting our mind upon it, setting our focus upon it. It is very easy to fail to be diligent in disciplining our, disciplining our children consistently. This indicates for us this is not a cakewalk. This is not simplicity. This is something that takes great effort. And this is the way that God operates as well. Consider Hebrews 12, 7 through 11. It says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God, as, God is treating you as sons. For what is a son? Uh, for what son is there who his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now please understand what he's saying so far. You are experiencing the discipline of the Lord because you are his children. Because God does not discipline those who are not his children. He is not going to, they're not going to experience that in this life. And so what he's saying here is if you're not experiencing this kind of discipline from the Lord, you're illegitimate children because he disciplines those that are his. Verse 9 says, Besides this, we all have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of the spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God loves us and he disciplines us. And he's teaching us here that we are to do the same for our children. Notice that he refers to this discipline as being something that seems painful and unpleasant. Our discipline towards our children should seem painful and unpleasant to them. That doesn't mean that it should harm them physically. If that's what's going on, you're doing it wrong. We, we need to be gentle, gracious, loving, but it is something that they should recognize and feel. Now, I'm not going to talk extensively uh, about the specifics of spanking and those sorts of things. We're going to get there later on today when Ed speaks with us. But this does bring us nicely to our third way that being a gospel-centered parent changes everything. It is that our discipline will be designed to produce heart transformation 
more than merely behavior modification. Now, there are many reasons that we give for not disciplining our kids. And most often, it comes down to either laziness on our part, or it comes down to a lack of understanding of what sin really is. It can be easy for us to sweep our children's sin under the rug when we view it as some minor infraction of arbitrary man-made policies. But the main point is not that our children have disobeyed, it's who they have disobeyed. It is all about who they are breaking their, whose laws they are breaking. David got this exactly right when he repented in Psalm 51. Now, he had committed a lot of sin. Like, his sin was stuff that we would look at and say, that is, that is huge, that is major. He committed adultery. He lied to cover it up. He had the, the woman's husband killed. This is major stuff. And then David declares in Psalm 51, to God, against you, and you alone, have I sinned. In a comparative sense, God was the one who was being harmed. He was the primary target of David's disobedience. Now, our ultimate aim in disciplining our, disciplining our children is not to make them perfect little automatons that never make a mistake. Although we should desire them to always obey, we should desire them and expect them to respect us and listen to us and do what we ask them to do. We need to remember that they are children of their parents. You and I are imperfect sinners who desperately need the grace of God, and so are they. In fact, Proverbs 22.15 says, Folly or foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Now picture the heart of your child. If you're here, I assume that you all have children. Just imagine their heart for a moment. The Bible is using this imagery of this tangle of string surrounding it and covering it. It is foolishness. Each one of these strands is a different form of foolishness. And every time they express this kind of foolishness, the rod of correction comes in and it cuts off one of those strands and it removes it. And if their heart will be softened by it, if they will be uh, ready to hear it, then that strand will be taken away and they will be a little less foolish than they were moments before. And our responsibility as parents is to create little days of judgment for them. Little, that's what we're doing when we discipline them. We are creating little days of judgment so that when the true day of judgment comes, they will have already seen the great wrath of God from a long distance away. They will have turned to him in mercy and that they will escape that day of judgment because we have spent our time and our effort to create these little days of judgment to reveal their sinfulness so they know They need the grace of God. I want to borrow a big quote here from Paul Tripp's book on parenting. It's a long quote, so stick with me. Here's what he says. He says, here's the bottom line for every parent. The change that has to happen in each of your children, you can't create. In fact, nowhere in his word has God tasked you with the responsibility to create it. Good parenting is about becoming okay with the fact that you are powerless to truly change your child. In fact, good parenting is all about celebrating the fact that God has never and will never put the burden of change on you. Because changing your children is a burden that we could never bear. God bore that burden for us by sending his son to be the author of lasting personal change. The burden that caused his death liberates us as parents and gives us new gives new life to our children. 
Now, that's good news. So our job is simple. It's not to create change, but to be humble and willing instruments of change in the hands of the only author of change. So in order to do this, Paul Tripp explains later on in his book that we need to get rid of what he refers to as the power tools of parenting. The things that we try to do to force our children to change. Things that we try to do to make external changes on them that are not changing or affecting the heart. These are the ways that we attempt to do this. We discipline them with tactics of fear, or we discipline them with tactics of reward, or we discipline them with tactics of shame. These are the main ways that we are naturally inclined to attempt to correct our children. But ultimately, all of these will fail. There will come a day when your children will no longer fear you. My, my son Ace is pretty much already as strong as I am if he wants to be. Right? There's a day coming when he'll recognize he's bigger than me and I can do nothing to intimidate him. There will be occasions when the passing pleasures of sin will outweigh the trivial gifts that you give them for obedience. There will be times that what they want will supersede what you can offer them for obeying you. And shame heaped upon them will simply turn into disdain for you. And it will likely result in their disgust of you or their hatred of you over time. It does not produce inward change when you shame your child what it results in is usually outward rebellion or inward discouragement. But when we discipline our children correctly and appropriately, they should never question our love for them. They should never doubt our desire for their betterment. Even as we're spanking them, as we're disciplining them, they need to understand we're not doing this out of anger. I'm not doing this because I want to shame you. I'm doing this because I love you. And I genuinely want you to understand who God is. And I want you to see that as I am doing this for you, I am seeking to love you. Because if I hated you, I would let you keep sinning. But I love you, so I am going to graciously correct you. We should not do this in a way that intimidates. We should not use our facial features or our loud voices to scare them. It needs to be something that is done in grace and in humility, and in love. Now, I'm going to save a lot of this for later because I know Ed is planning to speak about discipline for an extended period of time. So let's go ahead and move on now to our fourth point, which is this. <clears throat> Being gospel-centered helps us to keep the long view in focus. Parents have hard days. We have really hard days sometimes. Our kids sin. We sin as parents. And sometimes we get to the end of the day and we think, what in the world am I doing? What am I doing? I am not a good parent. My kids are terrible. This is not working. And on the one hand, it's possible that we are not parenting in a biblical manner. Perhaps that our children are moving farther and farther into their sin because we are not being faithful to correct them consistently. Perhaps we've spent years attempting to raise our children either in ignorance of God's commands or in rebellion against the Bible's teaching. And if that's the case with you, I would encourage you to come to the Lord today and repent and begin to center your parenting on the person and work of Jesus right now. It's not too late to begin. Build your practice from this day forward on the teachings of Scripture. But also, I want to say that it is possible that you are fighting for gospel-centered, Christ-filled parenting, but you just face-planted for two or three days in a row. And it's at times like this when it can be we just want to give up. It just feels crushing the weight of it on us. 
And we can get tired of disciplining them consistently. We can grow weary of saying the same thing to them over and over and over. Why don't you love your sister? Why don't you love your brother? But the gospel reminds us that our children are not merely gifts to us. They are also eternal souls that will live forever somewhere. And our daily acts of teaching and discipline them are God's tools to point them to the gospel. Our children are immortal souls that have been temporarily entrusted to us. We are currently their authority. If you are a parent, those children are under your care. You are their authority. But that is only going to last for a short time. Life is short. Eternity is long. And the long view is this. Our seemingly insignificant acts of faithful parenting right now, these little times of discipline, these little times of instruction, they might result in planting seeds of gospel truth that will grow into eternal salvation. I like the way Rob Plummer explains it. He says it this way. He says, if our children stand beside us in eternity, it will not be as our children, but as our blood-redeemed brothers and sisters. Even as parents rightly pour out their lives in caring for their children, they must realize that what matters eternally is that their children know the Lord. The category of biological lineage or legal progeny will fade into insignificance at the dawning of eternity. End quote, and well said. Our ultimate goal as parents is to glorify God. Our primary job is to give God the glory in all that we're doing. And one of the best ways that God gets glory is when sinners come to him in salvation. So it is central to the desire of a Christian parent that our children might become our brothers and sisters in Christ. And oh, I pray that my kids will stand next to me in heaven around the throne of God as my brother and sister in Christ. Now, I I love teaching a like throwing a football. Yesterday I was trying to teach him to throw a football. That's fun for me. And I love teaching Petra to ride her bike. And I love to give Athanasius piggybacks around the house as fast as I possibly can. And Mordecai, I can't really teach him much right now, but I just love bouncing him around. I love doing these things with them. And I already have plans to show them all sorts of movies when they get old enough not to be scared by them. And all of these are good and special and precious things. But it can be so easy to be distracted by these types of things or by necessary events like school or other programs or schedules or entertainment or recreation. It can be so easy to get focused on these things that I forget that my kids are eternal beings who need to hear the gospel every day over and over. <clears throat> ben Arnault often tells me, you know, the days are long, but the years fly by. And that's true. That's true. I can't believe that my oldest is almost seven years old. It boggles my mind. And honestly, it's kind of terrifying. But as Christian parents, we also need to ensure that our eyes are not just fixed on the speed of the time that is passing by us. But instead, we also need to be constantly aware of eternal realities, of the eternal timeline. And this helps us when we're discouraged because it causes us to be aware that our success is not determined by immediate or even long-term outward fruitfulness, but our success is determined by our faithfulness. So love your children and love them carefully so that they might love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now we only have a short amount of time left for this session, so I want to go ahead and hit our last point, which is this. 
The gospel reminds us that the power for our parenting comes from Christ, not from ourselves. There are many commands in the Bible. There's a ton of things that we are told to do, even in the New Testament. And we are called to obey them. But we cannot, it is impossible to obey them apart from God's power in us. Before we're saved, the Bible refers to us as being slaves to sin. Slaves don't get vacation. They don't get days off. They don't get to tell their, their master, I'm, you know, I'm not interested in this position anymore. I'm going to go find a new master. That's not the way slavery works. We are called in the Bible enemies of God. We are called blind because of our sin. And in Ephesians 2, we are told that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Our desires naturally are not to give God glory. In fact, our natural desire is to run and hide and rebel from him as much as possible. In fact, Romans chapter 8, verse 7 and 8 tells us that, with these words, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. We are hostile because we cannot be otherwise. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's an impossibility. We have no capability of honoring him or serving him in anything, including our parents. But the good news is that if we are in Christ, we have been given the ability to honor God and we have been given the power to obey him. If the Holy Spirit is in us, we have the power to obey. There are days when you and I will feel incapable of performing the task of parenting that has been set before you. You know that you're called to it because you have your kids. There are times when you might question your calling. Am I really supposed to serve in this way? Is this really the ministry I'm called to? If you have your kids, yes, you are called to that ministry. That is your duty before God. They are yours. And you feel the pressure of that often. That this is my calling and I don't feel capable of doing it. I don't feel up to the task. I feel constantly exhausted. I feel like I have nothing to give them. But God has called you to something that you cannot do by yourself. He has done this because he desires for us to remember and be reminded consistently that we need God's help to accomplish this. Perhaps you've heard Jim Gaffigan before. Uh, Jim Gaffigan is a comedian and he once said that if you want to know what it's like to have four kids, just imagine you're drowning and then somebody hands you a baby. And I have four kids, I kind of agree with that. I I feel like that. I feel like I'm drowning in parenting some days. My wife's favorite verse in the Bible is 2 Corinthians 12, 9. It says this, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ might rest in me. Please understand, you are not the greatest testimony if you're the best parent. In fact, a lot of parents I know don't like the best parents. I'm like, what is, those people are obnoxious. The way that you are the best testimony of God's grace is by recognizing your sin and your failures and your lack of perfection and your desperate need for Christ and relying and trusting in him for your strength. And that is what it looks like to be a gospel-centered parent. To see that you are not up to the task, but he is. And if you're a good parent, it will not be because of you. It will be in spite of you. Because you are not a good person. 
according to the scripture. So you cannot be a good parent. Jesus says to the, to the rich young ruler, he says, why do you call me good? There's only one who's good. That's God alone. We have no hope apart from his assistance and his grace and his mercy and his help. Now, maybe you've been going about this whole parenting thing the wrong way your whole life. Maybe you failed in this consistently. Maybe you've never called out to God for help. We can change that right now. And we can change that consistently and simply. It's just about changing our perspective about what it means to lead them and guide them. You are weak, so there's nothing wrong with declaring your weakness. And I am weak, so there's nothing wrong with me getting on my knees before God and saying, I am completely, utterly helpless to do this task. I need your grace. And there are promises in the scripture that declare to us that he hears those kinds of requests. God lifts up those who are humble. He, he hears those needs of the humble. But he poses those who are proud. Are we proud in our parenting? Now, I want to close with another extended quote from Paul Tripp. He says this. He says, Your hope as a parent is not found in our power. It is not found in your wisdom or your character or your experience or your success, but in this one thing alone, the presence of your Lord, the Creator, the Savior, Almighty Sovereign King, He is with you. So let your heart rest. You are not in this parenting drama alone. Your potential is greater than the size of your weaknesses because the one who is without weakness is with you. And He does His best work through those who will admit that they are weak, but still in their weakness will obey His call. So let's set our hearts on Christ. Let's set our hearts on Jesus and be confident in his love for us and be confident that he gives us tasks that are above and beyond what we can accomplish so that his glory might be seen. And let's trust him to be our hope and our guide and our leader. And let's define our love for our children based upon what we see about him in God's word. And let's discipline in such a way that we will seek to point our children to him. And let's always keep eternity in view as we lean on Christ for our strength. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, I, Lord, even as I'm teaching this today, Lord, I am seeing even more clearly my desperate need for your mercy in my parenting efforts. Lord, I know that for each one of us here who have children, that we feel occasionally just that we are completely incapable of this task. But God, you know why you have given these children to us. And Lord, I pray for each and every parent here that they would be strengthened, not in their own power, not by just white-knuckling it and taking the mercenary approach to get through parenting. But God, I pray that you would please allow us to live our lives completely submitted to Christ and recognizing that our weaknesses are opportunities for Christ to show his strength. God, we pray that in our, in our parenting efforts we would be consistent, that we, we would be loving, that we would be able to discipline well. And Lord, I pray that it would produce in our children a clarity about the gospel, that they might see Jesus, and that they might see the need to trust in him, and then they might understand what it means to fear the Lord. And God, I pray for every parent here that as we go through the remainder of the day, that you would build us up, that you would encourage us, that this would not be a time for us to be nitpicky and tear each other down, but this would be a time for us to recognize the great responsibility that we have in shaping the hearts and minds of these children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, at this time, we're going to take about a 15-minute break. There's
Lots of delicious foods back there that are still available. Lunch will be available after this next session, so please grab as much as you would like. If you're getting a little tired, there is coffee back there available. want to make sure um, that we're back in our seats in about 15 minutes for the next session.